Hello, and welcome to the Upgrade the World podcast. I'm your host, Josh, and in this episode, I'll be discussing Stuxnet. With U.S.-supplied, highly enriched uranium, Iran was able to fuel a small nuclear reactor effectively beginning their nuclear program in the 1960s. Though advancement of the nuclear program slowed during the Islamic Revolution and Iran-Iraq War, by the middle of the 1990s, Iran publicly pursued continuation of their nuclear program. In 2002, satellite photos verified Iran's construction projects of nuclear plants to enrich uranium, a chemical element that in highly purified form can be used to create nuclear weapons. Once this information came to light, Iran agreed to negotiation talks with France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. With the talks failing to progress, the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, voted that Iran was in violation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and deferred the matter to the United Nations Security Council. Iran's defiance to terminate its nuclear program upon the Security Council's demand in 2006 was met with imposed sanctions, which have been intensified since, but to no avail. While the evaluation of methods for dealing with the perceived danger Iran poses to the United States and the rest of the world continues, Iran maintains its right to nuclear power. On June 17, 2010, a Belarusian antivirus software company, Virus Block Ada, discovered a computer worm, which was later branded Stuxnet, based on file names uncovered in the source code. The worm was written in multiple programming languages and contained almost half a megabyte of code, atypical for common malware, which generally are 10 to 15,000 bytes. Stuxnet consists of a main dropper DLL file containing all of its files and functions. Upon execution of the DLL file, Stuxnet checks the administration rights it is granted. If Stuxnet finds it is not on the administrator level, it employs one of two zero-day exploits in order to escalate its privileges to that of an administrator of the machine. After achieving the necessary rights on the computer, Stuxnet begins installation by injecting itself into a system process that is determined based on the manufacturer of the antivirus software present on the computer being infected. If no antivirus software is present, a default Windows process is used for injection. In addition to writing four encrypted files, two driver files, mrxnet.sys and mrxcls.sys are installed, and the computer registry is updated to ensure the device drivers are loaded every time the computer boots up, ensuring no disruption to the worm's plans. Both of these drivers are digitally signed with the signature of Realtek Semiconductor Corp., a legitimate provider of system drivers, which further allowed Stuxnet to exist undetected. Stuxnet's last step of installation is to make modifications to the system registry to ensure the Windows Defender Firewall program does not block it, as it can receive updates through the internet as well as peer-to-peer networking. The Stuxnet worm was discovered to have several ways of spreading across computers. At the time of its discovery, Stuxnet was determined to use a previously unknown vulnerability in the way Microsoft Windows handles link files to automatically run the malware executable from a USB storage device. Interestingly, the worm contained an infection counter that was referenced to ensure an infected USB would only infect up to three other computers before Stuxnet removed itself from the USB drive. The Stuxnet worm could also spread throughout a network through two different methods. The first method is by using an exploit implemented by the unrelated but widely known Conficker worm that looks for shared and writable directories on remote systems. 
Upon finding such directories, Stuxnet copies to the directory and then runs itself. The second method of spreading throughout a network involved a vulnerability in shared printers that allowed files to be copied to another computer that was also connected to the printer. Once Stuxnet has self-replicated onto a machine, it checks for a Programmable Logic Controller, or PLC, that is running a specific supervisory control and data acquisition software called Siemens WinCC. If the infected machine does not meet this condition, the worm does not attack. However, if the logical condition described is met, Stuxnet gains access to the PLC using the manufacturer's default passwords and uploads configuration data about the system, such as IP addresses, computer name, and operating system to a command and control server. There were two command and control servers, www.mypremierfootball.com and www.todaysfootball.com, hosted on servers in Malaysia and Denmark. Those on the receiving end of the command and control server are then able to select a target-infected PLC and manipulate the way it operates. Once activated, Stuxnet would slow down some centrifuges while speeding up others to the point where they would be physically destroyed. Given the vast capabilities of the worm, the detail that Stuxnet does not always attack is peculiar given that generally computer worms and viruses aim to spread and do their bidding to as many computers as possible. The specific software Stuxnet was looking for suggested Stuxnet was a directed attack. However, the question remained, at whom was the attack directed? A global team of researchers at Symantec were intrigued by the complexity of the worm and delved into reviewing the source code. After noting the aforementioned command and control servers, Symantec requested that the DNS providers for the servers redirect the traffic to a Symantec-owned computer for analysis. The DNS providers agreed and Symantec's machine received information for 38,000 infected machines. As the Symantec team plotted the geographical locations of the infected machines, they discovered that 22,000 of the 38,000 infected machines resided in Iran. In September 2010, a control system security expert named Ralph Langner posted his hypothesis regarding the purpose of the Stuxnet worm and its intended target. Langner posited that Stuxnet was an act of sabotage against a highly prized target for the attacker. He also noted the complexity of the worm itself, the technical expertise needed to reap the benefit of the vulnerabilities suggest a resourceful team of highly qualified individuals with insider knowledge about their target and the systems the target uses. Taking this data into consideration, along with the fact that most infections were present in Iran, Langner concluded the target of Stuxnet to be the Iranian nuclear program, specifically the Bushehr plant. In December 2010, a team at the Institute for Science and International Security released a report with details that links Stuxnet and Iran's Natanz uranium enrichment facility. The report notes that the centrifuges in Natanz are arranged in cascades containing centrifuges in groups of 164, a number prevalent in the Stuxnet source code. Additionally, the report states that Stuxnet commands return the motor frequency to a value of 1410 Hz, which happens to be the nominal frequency of the IR-1 centrifuges used by Iran to enrich uranium at the Natanz facility. With Stuxnet's targets seemingly confirmed, suspicions that the United States and or Israel were authors of the Stuxnet worm seem plausible. However, no one publicly acknowledged involvement. In summer 2010, 
Due to a defect in a newly released version of Stuxnet, the worm failed to realize its environment was no longer the Natanz facility when taken home by a worker at Natanz and began spreading itself over the internet. Stuxnet has secured its place in cybersecurity history as the first malware attack on a critical infrastructure that caused physical destruction. The release of Stuxnet has supplied the blueprint for what could be repurposed to the digital equivalent of a nuclear weapon. In September 2011, a new worm named Dooku was discovered by the Laboratory of Cryptography and System Security, Crisis Lab, which had a similar design as Stuxnet. However, instead of destroying Iranian centrifuges, the purpose was stealing information. In May of the following year, a new malware known as Flame was discovered that was capable of recording and reporting screenshots, keystrokes, network traffic, and even audio. Flame has been described as 20 times more complex than Stuxnet, with full malware analysis of the malware possibly taking 10 years. A month after the Flame discovery, a very similar malware, Goss, was uncovered that also engaged in espionage activities. A key difference of Goss from Flame was that in addition to the data collected by Flame, Goss also took credentials for banking systems, social networks, email, and instant messaging accounts. It is telling that in a relatively short amount of time following Stuxnet, we have discovered even more sophisticated attacks. Now that these malware are publicly available, they can serve as supplementary blueprints to be added to the arsenal of a motivated attacker. Non-state actors aside, other countries, Iran in particular, may feel obligated or justified to launch their own attacks. Additionally, there's a threat that the response to Stuxnet from another country may be potentially more destructive and perhaps even involve kinetic force. Whether or not a cyber attack is a use of force remains a gray area, allowing other countries to draw their own conclusions. The Stuxnet worm made this distinction even more perplexing by inflicting physical damage. The history of this malware marvel is intriguing, yet the focus of the cybersecurity community must shift towards the future. With the discovery and dissection of the Stuxnet worm, we have observed the execution of a cyber weapon that has changed the cybersecurity landscape. No longer is malware limited to just computers, but now it extends to critical physical infrastructures as well. The sophistication of Stuxnet alone should rightfully change future cybersecurity methodologies. A key point to be aware of is that by the time Stuxnet was discovered, it had already compromised its target. From a cyber defense perspective, this is an important takeaway. Just as it likely took the alliance of many specialists to author and deploy Stuxnet, so too did it require a team of a variety of professionals to analyze, address, and attribute the threat following discovery. For professionals to adequately secure the cyber domain in a post-Stuxnet world, where malware sophistication outpaces security measures and threat assessment capabilities, and attack attribution can lead to retribution and escalation, collaboration is paramount. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep upgrading.